Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion. On this episode, we are joined by Anne Luckadoo, a physical therapist and certified hand therapist who led a team of clinicians to develop a clinical practice guideline for lateral elbow pain and muscle function impairments. Anne shares with us what a clinical practice guideline is and how they are developed, as well as the results of this guideline and how therapists treating patients with this condition can best utilize the evidence. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Anne. And we really appreciate you joining us on this episode this evening. Why don't you tell our listeners, before we jump into our topic, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself? My name is Anne Luckadoo. I'm an associate professor at Mercer University in Atlanta, Georgia. And I've been there for about 13 years and have worked primarily in upper extremity rehabilitation in some way, shape, or form over the majority of my career, which I'm not going to do the math, but started about 1993, I believe. So I basically have led the clinical practice guideline group that developed the lateral elbow tendinopathy clinical practice guideline, along with Matt Day from University of Dayton, Joshua Vincent, Joy McDermott, Jane Fedorzik, Ruby Gruel, and Rob Roy Martin all contributed to the clinical practice guideline. Great. Well, before we really dive into the specific clinical practice guideline, why don't you tell our listeners, because not everyone may be familiar with what a clinical practice guideline or a CPG is. So tell us a little bit about what that actually is, what that means. Okay. A clinical practice guideline is developed from systematic reviews of the literature, answering very specific research questions. So usually a PICO question or a foreground question is posed regarding different aspects of patient management in order to be able to provide some guidance as to how to generally manage patients with a certain condition. So clinical practice guidelines are not supposed to be clinicians' opinions or thoughts on how we should treat patients. They're, in fact, systematic reviews of the literature to guide us into evidence-based management of specific patient conditions. And clinical practice guidelines will include any of a number of aspects of patient management, but it can include the examination, the measurement or outcome measurements commonly used or most studied type of things to measure progress in patients. It can include prognostic indicators, what types of risks there are to develop that type of problem, and interventions. 
So it can cover just a number of different aspects of patient management, but everything is grounded in the evidence. So as a guideline development group, what we do is convey what evidence is out there and try to pose it in such a way that it's useful for clinicians so that they don't have to go diving into the literature and finding out all of this information. What we also find is that sometimes the literature is inconclusive. And therefore, as individuals working on the clinical practice guideline development, if literature is not conclusive, we can insert our opinion based on our years of experience in working with these types of individuals to make expert recommendations on what's reasonable to include in the management of these patients. However, the guideline is grounded in the evidence and objective systematic review. So if you don't mind me asking, when did these begin? Like how long have they been in existence? And as evidence changes, will the CPGs change? So I could not tell you when the first clinical practice guideline (laughs) was created. I do know that this took us in excess of or right at about 10 years to develop because the literature is constantly changing. So we had a really hard time keeping up with the literature. And at the time that we began this process, American Physical Therapy Association was really just starting to get these guideline development groups together. So a little bit of what we did was trying to get our feet on the ground, collect all of the data. And because there is constant turnover in the literature, it was very hard to keep up with that. So I think that we're unusual in terms of the time it took to develop this type of clinical practice guideline, because at the beginning, we didn't have the technological resources that we do today to enable some of the process to go faster. So in order to make sure that what you're reading as a clinician in terms of a clinical practice guideline, you should see that that clinical practice guideline has been published within five years of when you're going to apply it. If a clinical practice guideline is greater than five years, in all likelihood, that information is probably not applicable. Great. Thank you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In fact, if you look at the ECRI guidelines, we trust website, one of their inclusion criterion is that a clinical practice guideline has to be within five years of publication in order for it to be published on that particular site. So a lot of sites will just remove them if they're any greater than five years in publication. Those changes occur so frequently with the modalities and the treatment interventions as as surgical procedures change, interventions are going to change. So I kind of wondered like how often that has to be redone in 10 years from now or probably five years from now because it'll have to be redone again or revisited again. That would just be my thoughts, I guess. 
No, you're exactly right. In fact, the carpal tunnel syndrome guideline development group is already working on their revisions. So when we're looking ahead, I imagine that, I mean, we're in 2022. So in 2025, the lateral elbow tendinopathy clinical guideline group is going to be starting on their literature review because it's going to take at least five minutes <laughs> to <laughs> update the literature and update the clinical practice guideline. Now, what I would say is that there's probably less turnover, if you will, in terms of the literature that comes out regarding the clinical examination, the prognostic indicators, the risk factors, and so forth, and probably the most rapid literature that comes out is related to the interventions. So it may be that we focus on interventions rather than some of the other sections, or may just be an all-encompassing overview of or redo of the entire guideline, knowing that some of those other sections like outcomes, activity limitations, report, like outcome measures, are probably not going to have as much literature behind it when you compare it to interventions. And so you were the leader on this project. Where did y'all start? So when y'all said, okay, we want to look at developing a clinical practice guideline for lateral elbow pain, what kicked that off? How did y'all get started on developing this guideline? We developed it in response to and kind of a needs assessment in terms of the American Physical Therapy Association with a combination of the Academy of Upper Extremity Rehabilitation and Physical Therapy and the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy. Both agreed that literature needed to be synthesized related to lateral elbow tendinopathy in so much as individuals who treat orthopedic conditions and those of us who treat upper extremity conditions both had a need for the synthesis of information. Once that need was identified, then a group of individuals who were deemed to be experts in the field of treating elbow tendinopathy issues were established. And once the team of us was established, then we all agreed on specific PICO questions or foreground questions to be answered. And I'll be honest with you, at the time, this was such a new venture for us. We overestimated our ability to answer as many questions as we answered. In hindsight, I think all of us would have agreed we needed to narrow this down a little bit more. As it stands, we had to conduct 16 systematic reviews and we had to keep redoing them as the literature kept coming out every year. And that's what kept us in a little bit of a cycle, making it a little bit longer than anybody had expected it would take for us to get to publication. 
what are the components of a clinical practice guideline? You've kind of alluded to the evaluation and some of the interventions, but when y'all set out to put this into publication, what were the things that needed? Maybe this is requirements from APTA. What were those components that y'all set to publish in this? So a clinical practice guideline can cover as many or few aspects of the patient clinic management model as any guideline development group would dictate themselves. I mean, it really is up to the guideline development group or the organization that oversees them. So usually you'll see professional associations like the American Physical Therapy Association or the American Occupational Association. And maybe we'll see something happen with the American Society of Hand Therapists at one point. But these associations tend to commission this type of work. And in the commissioning of this particular clinical practice guideline, we were charged to hit on most of the patient-client management model in that we were asked to evaluate things like the patient examination, differential diagnosis, outcome measures that would be used to assess individuals and determine how any person was progressing over time with our interventions. We also were looking at physical impairment measures as well as therapeutic interventions and prognosis for that matter. Were there any surprises when y'all were looking in the literature with any of these sections? Were there surprises that y'all thought, oh, well, maybe this would be recommended, but the literature said something different? I can't speak for all of the guideline development group, but I would have to answer no. I don't think there were really any big surprises. If I were to say one surprise is that no body of literature strongly supported much of anything that we do in terms of management of lateral elbow tendinopathy. The highest level of evidence related to the outcome measures that we should be taking when evaluating someone with lateral elbow tendinopathy. However, everything else was grade B level evidence, which is moderate evidence to support literature. There was a lot of conflicting evidence on some interventions in particular, which I think speaks to a problem that we have in research related to lateral tendinopathy, lateral elbow tendinopathy in particular, but I don't know that it's terribly unique to this population. But I think in order to demonstrate effectiveness of any given treatment, you need to choose the right patient. So if you have a patient population who's in more of a chronic stage, are you ever going to demonstrate the efficacy or effectiveness of iontophoresis with an anti-inflammatory medication? So the literature 
demonstrated to us that we probably choose too broad of a patient population with various stages or levels of irritability and therefore may not be getting the answers that we would expect because we're basically choosing patient samples that are way too different or varied in their presentation, where many of the studies had patients who were four weeks post onset of symptoms. And in the same study, you had people who had symptoms that were lasting four years. So how do you expect to really demonstrate effectiveness if you can't choose a subgroup of patients that you think would benefit most from that particular intervention. Yeah, I would think that that would be really hard to draw conclusions on such a wide range and narrow that down. It's very hard on researchers. Yeah, sure. (laughs) To get subjects, anybody, anybody to agree to do a research study. And so I have found myself to be in this situation where I've got inclusion criteria that are so broad so that I can include as many people because we want to increase the power of the study. But in increasing the power to the study, are we really answering a question related to a patient who is in a very specific level of acuity or level of irritability? And if you have someone who is highly irritable, you would expect them to respond differently to an intervention when you compare that to someone whose symptoms are more stable and that have been a little bit more chronic in nature. And so a large part of what we did with the clinical practice guideline was to establish a determination of irritability So in large part, what we recommended that when you take your outcome measures and our outcome measures, the patient reported outcome measures as supported by very strong evidence included the patient rated tennis elbow evaluation or the disability of the arm, shoulder and hand. So those are patient-reported outcome measures that clinicians should be using to evaluate, not both, but one or the other. And then the numeric pain rating scale rated very high on evidence out there determining its appropriateness for using in this patient population. And then the patient-specific function scale, particularly for those individuals who might be highly athletic or very, very high functioning, where you might have a ceiling effect related to the patient-rated tennis elbow evaluation or disability of the arm, shoulder, and hand, you can use a patient-rated specific function scale in order to determine or to follow anyone's progress, especially for those high-functioning patients. And then looking at physical impairment measures, which were supported by moderate-level evidence that included range of motion of the elbow, forearm, and wrist, 
pressure pain threshold, pain-free grip strength, and maximum grip strength are all items that you should be using to evaluate patients. No surprises there. But what we did in the clinical practice guideline was took those measures and said, why don't we start thinking about determining the irritability of the patient based on those particular measures? So when you start looking at self-reported pain distribution of symptoms and level of disability, we can be using that information to determine a stage of irritability. So if you're looking at self-reported pain scores that are relatively mild, and we operationalize that as less than three on a numeric pain rating scale, and you had unilateral symptoms and the symptoms were fairly local and you had mild reports of disability, then we could determine that that person really wasn't in a highly irritable stage, right? And so once you start categorizing a person as their irritability is relatively mild, you might not have to start your treatment with symptom modulation. You may be able to move on to very quickly some loading, but that would be very different than if we had a person present with severe pain, like a seven or over pain distribution is how we operationalized it. If they had bilateral symptoms that were diffuse that might present as neuropathic type pain and they had significant disability, then we would want to really start that individual in terms of interventions at more of a symptom modulation type focus. So in the clinical practice guidelines, we as an expert group of individuals who treat these patients operationalize some of the categorization based on our years of clinical experience so that we could enable clinicians to recognize that we need to differentiate these individuals at the examination in order to determine where to start our intervention strategies. So we devised four intervention strategies, four categorizations of intervention strategies. And the first started with symptom modulation. And when we look at treating someone who has fairly high irritability, focusing on symptom modulation would include intervention strategies such as deloading rigid tape, which was categorized as a grade B or supported by moderate evidence. Additionally, grade C recommendations included regional mobilizations or manipulations, which might include thoracic or cervical spine manipulations, wrist mobilizations, and so forth. So you would stay away from the area of irritability. Kinesiology tape was rated C, level evidence, which is basically your weak evidence. So you don't have as strong of evidence, but there is evidence supporting it in favor of of helping reduce symptoms. 
cryotherapy with burst tens, iontophoresis with an anti-inflammatory drug, low or high frequency tens, and even laser treatment were all recommended for treatment of symptoms in that highly irritable stage with weak evidence pointing to a positive effect of each of those. When you looked at just basic science research, cryotherapy has a lot of supportive evidence to go ahead and use. So although the research wasn't specific to lateral elbow tendinopathy, it intuitively made sense that if you're dealing with an irritable inflammatory condition, cryotherapy makes sense to use. Ergonomic interventions were also grade E or kind of this theoretical or foundational science where education, workstation adjustments, and so forth make sense to use at this highly irritable stage. And then grade F is expert opinion. And based on the literature, we had a lot of conflicting evidence on the use of forearm counterforce braces or wrist support braces. And as experts, we reviewed the literature. And we also reviewed some surveys in terms of what hand therapists use in terms of wrist support or lateral counterforce brace. And I believe it was 80% of hand therapists actually use these types of supportive devices to manage symptoms. So we ended up making a recommendation that clinicians certainly can use either one in order to immediately help relieve symptoms in these patients when symptoms are aggravated by activity, but also recognize that if it doesn't work for an individual, don't use it. But it's based on conflicting evidence. We really couldn't say that it was appropriate to use for intermediate or long-term use. We could say that if it helps in the short term, go ahead and use it. Kind of one of those low risk, give it a try. If it works for your patient in that early stage, use it. If it doesn't, don't. Exactly. When you look at someone who the individual is not so irritable and they're presenting with less irritability, less acuity of symptoms, the symptoms are not quite so high in terms of intensity, we recommend intervention strategies based in mobility and trying to just get them moving a little bit more. So our moderate evidence supported wrist extensor strengthening either alone or in combination with other interventions. And some of those interventions might have been those pulled from symptom modulation in order to mediate some of the pain response that occurs with certain exercises. Weaker evidence included exercises for the shoulder and scapular stabilization. And then weak evidence also supported regional mobilizations or manipulations and soft tissue work. Myofascial release, even instrument-assisted soft tissue work. Local mobilization was recommended at a grade B level, which is moderate evidence there. And there's a lot more literature supporting the use of either tendon or trigger point dry needling techniques. 
So those would all be things in this kind of mobility phase where somebody's not quite in that hyper irritable phase and just starting to get out of it. Then when you're looking at someone who really isn't very irritable at all, you can look at beginning a loading phase where wrist extensor strengthening exercises alone or in combination are really appropriate. But rather than going with lower load, um, we would increase that load. One of the things that's really missing in literature related to a lot of strengthening in any kind of rehabilitation are the dosing recommendations and the type of exercises. We did not find that concentric versus isometric versus eccentric, any of those made a difference, but exercise itself really did make a difference, but it really didn't give any kind of recommendations regarding loading. So we looked at literature that gave some guidelines that weren't necessarily scientifically studied, but at least it gave us a starting point. So when you're in the mobility phase, we recommended that you stay at 20% to 40% of the maximum um, voluntary isometric contraction. But as you move on to the loading phase, then you're actually going over 40% of that MVIC in order to actually get some changes in strength of the muscles. And then also recommended that you include the shoulder and scapula and start looking at strength along the kinetic chain in the loading phase. And you can gradually increase the lever arm, include upper extremity weight bearing, and gradually increase those resistances. And then finally, when you're dealing with someone whose symptoms are not irritable at all, they can get through the loading phase without any increasing in symptoms, it's really important to establish a return to function phase in these individuals where, of course, we're using wrist extensor strengthening exercises, working along that kinetic chain to include shoulder and scapular stabilization, but then increasing those loads to establish more and more strengthening as time goes by, but also to consider high-level neuromuscular control and anticipatory reactions, especially if you're dealing with any kind of athlete, if you're dealing with a tennis player, if you're dealing with an individual who is very, very active, we need to introduce function-specific tasks and be mindful of correcting any faulty mechanics as needed. But it's considered to be more of a phased approach to introducing loads to an individual to enable them to be set up for success for return to full function, rather than making leaps and jumps into asking them to do various activities that could potentially aggravate their symptoms. So although we categorize these as 
four subsections of intervention strategies, symptom modulation, mobility, loading, and return to function, what we end up finding in real life is that many people are floating in between each of these. And that is where your clinical reasoning comes in and making sure that if a person has overdone it, that you may need to back them off a little bit and that you may always be pulling in some symptom modulation strategies and not sticking in silos, acting as if everybody should progress sequentially because that doesn't happen realistically, that you feel comfortable moving back and forth within these phases and gradually getting them more toward the return to function phase. Yeah, we've all had that patient that comes back and says, oh, I went out and I was feeling so good and I went out and worked in my garden or I did X, Y, and Z activity and they come back and you're like, oh my goodness, what did you do? You're so inflamed or you're just so irritable. So I think that you make a good point in that these patients don't just progress on a straight line, they do weave in and out of these different categories or different phases. And that's where we do use our clinical judgment to go, you know what, you are really irritable. Let's back off of some of these strengthening loading activities and let's get this calmed down so that we can return to that. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify, you're not really approaching treatment as far as acute or chronic, it's really what the symptoms are presenting as during your assessment, which I find it really interesting because with this diagnosis specifically and a few other ones, it's really difficult to be able to do that, especially if you're dealing with somebody who has been dealing with it for years. They're not acute or they might have an acute onset, a re-onset of an acute injury, but technically not acute. So I really like that approach as far as how you guys came at that with the clinical practice, you know, what you found out in developing the, the guidelines, because that's an excellent way to approach that. I think that considering things to be acute, subacute, and chronic tend to get us thinking in terms of weeks and months and years, whereas we really need to be taking a stab at this from the perspective of how the symptoms are presenting at the time, which I think gives us a little bit more substantiation of what we actually see in the clinic. But as you can see, none of this is terribly surprising. I think that as hand therapists, we intuitively use that clinical reasoning to manage them, these individuals in that way. But I think that operationalizing this in the clinical practice guideline can serve not only to guide clinicians in management of these patients, but also serve to provide guidance for future researchers to be also operationalizing where individuals may be categorized in terms of their symptoms, use the irritability of symptoms to justify the treatment approach. And I think we might see a little bit more conclusive findings in the literature if we're basing inclusion of patients based on some of the irritability criterion rather than weeks of symptoms. And you've given us a really nice 
overview and walking us through these different stages. So when someone goes to pick up this clinical practice guideline, and I have it in my hands, and it is not small, and we'll make sure that we link this. In fact, I think back to y'all's presentation and a little plug for yours and Jane Dorsick as well as Joy McDermott, when y'all spoke at the ASHT conference, which people still have access to. So if you weren't able to attend in person, here's a little plug for that. But Jane said that this is 111 pages. On the second page, it's easy to go right to that second page to the recommendations, see it listed out. Here's the A evidence and the B evidence and the C evidence. There's 65 pages of just references and tables But really, it's the meat. It's those 36 pages of the meat of why y'all came up with those recommendations. So if a clinician is listening, how do you recommend someone uses this? I mean, again, you've given us this great kind of overview, but how would somebody pick up this 111 pages? And what is your team's recommendation of how someone utilizes this to impact and make a change in their clinical practice? I would say that the focus should be on when you look at the clinical practice guideline, probably going right to the summary of recommendations, and it's on page two of the guideline, that gives you very clear-cut summaries of what the research out there is saying. Unless it says expert opinion, These are all objective findings in the literature. I also think another great summary page is going right to the decision tree. The decision tree outlines everything very, very clearly, and it's a two-page document on page 43 and 44 of the document. Those are probably the two most simple places to get a nice overview of what this clinical practice guideline says. The remaining pages are really very helpful for reference, in my opinion, so that if you're really interested in finding out what evidence is out there related to dry needling, then go directly to that particular section of the CPG, or if you're really interested in what some of the risk factors are, right? So it's not something that people really sit and read before bed (laughs) for relaxation, (laughs) but it's really meant to be a reference and a resource for individuals to dig in a little bit deeper without necessarily having to go to PubMed and look at every individual article and interpret it themselves. But every individual article that we assessed, a summary is included in this particular clinical practice guideline. Now, one of the reasons why this is so long, because honestly, the entire clinical practice guideline really is only 44 pages long. The remaining are references, appendices, and the appendix actually included a lot more material than I had expected because part of the appendix is literally taking the data 
it describes all of the data we collected for each individual study. So you have all of the Pedro scores for every single study that we looked at, all of the AMSTAR scores for every single article we looked at, and all of the evidence tables for every single article we read. And therefore, probably it's not going to be something that most clinicians will read, but a lot of researchers would find that particular information really, really useful, so they wouldn't have to go back and reread the literature. Many times, these evidence tables are included only as an electronic reference. So this is one of the few guidelines that actually include it in the hard copy, and that's what makes this guideline so long. But in summary, I would say you could easily, easily go to the summary of recommendations and the algorithm and decision tree for managing patients and can get a huge amount of information from, which essentially would be four pages of this document. Dane, I know you mentioned that this took y'all, what'd you say, 10 years start it to really finish. Did. <laughs> Where do you see the gaps in literature? What do you see that is needed for this diagnosis, for this group of patients that we need next? We definitely need, as I said before, to choose the right patients for the right study. So categorizing individuals and making sure that you've clearly identified who the study is for, I think is number one, because one size does not fit all. But I think a lot of studies need to focus on loading progression to effectively work on exactly what are the dosage parameters exercises should take on in order to facilitate the most improvements in symptoms because exercise is one of the mainstays behind treating patients with lateral elbow tendinopathy. What we do not have is a clear idea on what loading progression is most effective. We've provided some place to start within our description of what we describe as a phased approach to treatment, but it hasn't been studied. It's just our information based on other areas of research, but not specific to the elbow. I also think that we need to look at pain mechanisms in patients who have unresolving symptoms. There needs to be something looking at why individuals are not responding when you would expect that they would and looking at are there peripherally or centrally mediated pain states that could be contributing to the perpetuation of symptoms. And I'd say if we did those three things, choosing the right patient, looking at proper loading progression for most effective management of symptoms, and also examining what pain mechanisms could be contributing to patients who have those unremittent or recurring symptoms, I think we would be advancing the knowledge of lateral elbow tendinopathy quite a bit. Well, I hope those researchers are listening because you just gave them 
three projects to start working on tomorrow. (laughs) I think that's probably one of the beauties (laughs) of clinical practice guidelines right now is the guides that it provides for future research needs. And every section of the clinical practice guidelines offers where there's a gap in the literature and what future research needs are. Well, Anne, this has been a great conversation. I want to say thank you to you and your team for developing this because hearing you at ACHT and having experience with this, I remember in PT school, we actually read some on other different body parts that was part of our research classes or whatnot. We pulled out these CPGs for various diagnoses. So I know that it takes a lot of work and we really appreciate your team picking this topic, picking this patient population, seeing that there was a need and answering that call. So thank you for working so hard on developing this for us. And I'm sure we'll see an update in the maybe not nearest future, but (laughs) eventually 2025 when (laughs) y'all recover from this one. (laughs) Right, right. Well, you might not see it in 2025. That's when we (laughs) might be picking up our pens again to get this going. (laughs) But I think probably the main thing I want to emphasize is that clinical practice guidelines are not cookbooks. They're not designed to tell people what to do when. There's nothing that can take the place of clinical reasoning and being there in the moment when you're treating a particular individual. When you look at what evidence-based practice is, evidence is just one aspect of being able to provide the most effective treatment that's grounded in evidence, but it doesn't take the place of clinical experience or the patient's preferences and values and what they believe is important. So when you look at clinical practice guidelines, it does provide a rich, rich, source of evidence. And it, you can see some insertion of what clinical experts believe based on years of clinical experience, what might be best for individuals. But it's clearly marked that it's more experiential-based than evidence-based. And then you have to take into account your own clinical experience and the patient that's sitting right in front of you and not take this as the way and the only way to manage your patients. This just gives us a huge resource so that we can make decisions that are grounded in evidence, keeping in mind that we're also dealing with individuals who may have comorbidities that might not be taken into account in the clinical practice guidelines or the evidence itself. That's great. Well, thank you again for joining us. And again, to you and your team for developing this clinical practice guideline. Um, We'll make sure that we have it linked in our show notes, as well as one more plug for anyone who registered for ASHT, you have access on demand. Y'all did a fantastic presentation on this and discussing the ins and outs and even further detail of this clinical practice guideline. So thank you for doing that as well. Well, thank you for having me. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast. Hands in Motion.